In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Carla, we must be doing something right to last 37 episodes. I know. Wait, what am I what is this from in the movie? <laughs> what is it from? <laughs> Um, at the beginning of the movie there's a song we must be doing something right to last 200 years i don't remember that at all you don't remember the opening song of the movie zero memory (laughs) well i mean even if you don't get the reference i mean you you get what i'm talking about we're 37 episodes into this podcast which is of course is a milestone that many podcasts do not cross or many marriages (laughs) many marriages never last 37 episodes right of uh fighting we never fight. We never fight. We get along great. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like the most stressful times for us are recording this podcast. Sure. And that's mostly a time management thing. <laughs> Who's time management? Mine. Uh, I'm a busy lady. You are a busy lady. It's hard to pin you down. Yep. As a matter of fact, we watched this movie a while ago. Not really like eight days ago, maybe. Eight days ago. But it's not super fresh in our mind right clearly since i don't remember the opening song at all <laughs> but i know the movie well and uh i did watch it we had to watch half of it apart so again i do, do not have carlos quotes for the full movie but there were a fair amount for the first half of it uh the movie is nashville mm-hmm. and it's a 1975 film by mr robert altman Robert Altman. Robert Altman. <laughs> Robert Altman. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good Don like Pardo, right? Like he's an SNL host. Yeah. That would be a... Why did Altman never host SNL? He would have been great. Yeah. I don't know if he would have. I'm assuming. Because <laughs> then all the sketches would just bleed into each other <laughs> and just all the actors would talk at the same time. It would yeah. just be one long sketch. I think Lauren probably saw that coming and was like... I'm not going to hire Altman. Uh, wow. You're just really whipping out your character reel within the first five <laughs> minutes of the episode today. That's why I didn't get SNL, by the way. Is my three impressions were Lorne Michaels, <laughs> Don Pardo, <laughs> and Robert Altman. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and they were like, it's two on the nose and then pretty far off the field. <laughs> On the nose and off the field. (laughs) What the hell does that mean? Left field? Uh, Yeah. Is what I meant to say. Okay. Uh, I don't even know what that means, though. Out of left field? Is that when that goes, the ball goes too far left? Uh, I I think what it means is, well, I don't know, because I feel like more balls get hit to left field. But out of left field is a metaphor meaning like, wow, that's great. Didn't see that coming. That's right. from far away. Like, that's weird, you know? Right. Um, maybe a baseball fan can explain to me why it's out of left field because I thought that more... That's yeah, right. You're not a baseball fan. I don't give a shit about baseball. <laughs> I all, hate America. It's all basketball and football. Oh, basketball with this guy. And tennis. Yeah. I love those sports. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but I think there's more right-handed batters, which means that we'd hit more to left field. I didn't mean right? to, to do this. I didn't mean to take us down this road. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this podcast can take all sorts of directions, and if it involves a half-hour discussion on America's pastime, the game of baseball, then we're, we'll go there. Right, Carlo? Right. Craig. Was this your first time seeing Nashville? It sure was. Did you know any? What did you know about it going into it? I knew that it was going to be long and talky because <laughs> that's what Robert hour, Altman is. It's about two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. And I knew, I don't know. I think I figured it was about the music industry in Nashville. I'm uh, touching my nose right now to indicate that Carla got it. Yeah. That's all I knew. And yeah. that Lily Tomlin was in it. Lily Tom, And you love Lily Tomlin. I love her. And so. Who you- doesn't? There probably are some Lily Tomlin haters out there. I David O. Russell so. doesn't care for her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he called her a choice name oh, or two. That's right. A, I love that clip. I know I'm not supposed to. Uh huh. Why do you? What do you love about it? Should we tell them what we're talking about? I'm sure they know, right? You've seen the video of David O. Russell having an onset meltdown uh, on the set of I Heart Huckabees that somehow got leaked out and there to the public. His mind at Lily Tomlin. And she's so – the reason I like it is because she's so fierce in it. She's like not taking his shit. She's not going to back down. No. Yeah. There's also a scene in a car, isn't there? I think there's two different meltdown scenes. And she's just like, this guy's a fucking asshole and I'm not going <laughs> to take it anymore. But Dustin Hoffman actually is is the peacemaker, right? Yeah. Like that's how you know it's a crazy situation if that nutbag <laughs> – <laughs> is trying to step in and mediate. Dustin Hoffman never listens to our podcast. I hope he does. Dusty, if you're out there. We're fans. We are fans. We are fans. You're crazy. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> we love you. You're crazy. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Why am I crazy? <laughs> uh, so Nashville, part of, I think, the greatest set of pictures nominated for Best Picture in one year, 1975. Oh, can I guess them? Sure. Godfather? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try again. Okay. 1975. That are also were also nominated for Best Picture, including the winner, which starred Jack Nicholson. Okay. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, I thought you were saying the winner was the name of the movie. It the winner. You Jack never, heard, never heard of the winner? <laughs> <laughs> okay, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's okay. I don't love that movie. Well. We're going to watch it again. We are going to watch it again. And what were the other two? Jaws. Jaws, yeah. And Barry Lyndon. Oh, I've never seen Barry Lyndon. Barry uh, If you... Don't like boring movies. Barry Lyndon is almost the epitome of a boring movie. Can't wait. But it's uh, it's not on my list. Okay. But uh, it it's a lesser Kubrick, but it is one of the most beautiful films ever made. It was all shot with natural light. So that's kind of the weak link in the chain. The other four movies are all on my top 100. Whoa. I think we also... Did we talk about 1974? The previous year also had four out of five of those pictures are on my list. Wow. As well. So this was Godfather? A, Godfather Part Two. Oh, Godfather Part Two. Godfather was 72. 
Oh, I wasn't alive, so everything blurs together. <laughs> everything before you were born <laughs> blurs my, together. All prenatal things. Oh, I remember it vividly. <laughs> you remember 74 vividly? 74 vividly, yeah. Me, five years old, watching the Oscars. <laughs> nope. Nope. But this was, <laughs> this was a time where kind of the tastes of critics and Academy voters and the public all kind of lined up. It was a great time for American film. And I think, uh, Nashville epitomizes the independent spirit of the, the studio films at the time. This is the only Altman film on my list. I do admire him greatly as a filmmaker, but he's very uneven. Hmm. I've probably seen 20 to 25 of his Whoa, movies. he made 25 movies? I mean, he made way more than that. There's a lot that I haven't seen. Really? I haven't seen some big ones like California Split is uh, oh, yeah. supposed to be one of his best movies about poker players. I've Heard never seen that. I've never seen that. Um, I think I, I've only seen uh, the Meryl Streep, Lily Tomlin one with Garrison Keillor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Prairie Home Companion. Prairie Home Companion, which is his last one, which apparently he didn't quite finish before his death. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson came in and... No, it was finished. Oh, yeah. I know this story. Okay, tell me the story. (laughs) The story is is that Paul Thomas Anderson was like his... He was on set with him because the studio or the insurance company wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't... I don't know what's it called back him. Sure. If, uh, cause he was so, he was so sick at the time. So Paul Thomas Anderson agreed to be on set. Uh, and therefore they then, uh, insured the movie. And there's rumors that Paul Thomas Anderson directed some of it. Okay. Yes. And that's why Maya Rudolph's in it, I guess. I, I knew that story. I had to clarify for you. Yeah. No, you're totally right. Because, because he, yeah, he was still alive when it came out. Was he? I thought he had died just as it came out, but you might be right. Yeah. Maybe well, you're right. We'll have to look that up. It was the year he died that that movie came out. Okay. Now, whether he died right before its release or right after its release. I don't know. After I, I sounded so confident, now I'm yeah. insecure about my life again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes for you to be insecure about your life is uh, one fact about the Prairie Home Companion. Uh, uh, you've never seen Shortcuts? I've, no, I have. That's the cello playing one, right? It's all about cello playing all the time. And Julianne Moore is a naked lady with some hair. Julianne Moore naked from the waist down in that movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I've seen that. I just don't really remember it. Okay. I have a feeling I won't remember Nashville either. Uh, <laughs> but that's not, I don't mean that in a bad way. Eight days later, you won't remember it? No, I think I remember it right now. Okay. But when, when will it totally like leave your year. memory? Okay. Um, why do you think that is? Is it the nature of... Yeah, I think it's just so conversational and it's not driven by plot at all. So it's hard to remember what it's really about. But I, I actually like that about it. So I didn't mean to sound like that was a negative thing necessarily. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, because when you talk about a movie, you're like, oh, this happens in the movie and that happens in the movie. And in his movies, you're just like, there's just people talking to each other <laughs> and like maybe one of them kisses the other one or something and they have some drinks. <laughs> yeah. Someone yeah. boils an egg. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right. I mean, the, the main character is more the, the setting. You know, the main character is Nashville. Uh, here's a bunch of people in and around the country music scene in Nashville in 1975. There are 24 main characters. Which is crazy. In the movie, which is crazy. Some Can I of, tell you what I did? Please. That I've, this is the first time I've done this okay. for a movie on a list. I rewatched over half of it. 
Really? I didn't tell you that. I didn't know that. <laughs> so we watched the first half together and then I came back and watched the second half on my own because we just couldn't get our schedules together. And then after I finished it that same night, I went back and watched the first half because I had to piece together the characters. Cause in the beginning, it's hard to, when you don't know the characters, it's hard to understand who they are and what yeah. they're doing there. And so I wanted to go back and see which ones were which ones. Wow. Okay, cool. And do you feel like you got a, a better yeah. sense of it? Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that I've probably seen six or seven times at this point. And so I feel like I know it pretty well, but I can definitely, Think back to when I first saw it, uh, which I think would have been after I saw Shortcuts. I think I, I think this is one of the few movies that I bought without having seen it. Oh. And this was at a time where I belonged to the prestigious Columbia House <laughs> VHS Club. What was the other one? BMG. Oh, I, that was for music. Well, BMG probably did music and tapes yeah. as well. You know, I definitely belonged to Columbia House for for vinyl, for cassettes, for CDs. I quit and rejoined so many times. I got in trouble with my parents because as a 13-year-old, I joined Columbia House as Hannibal Z. Jethro. <laughs> and <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> that was a fake name that I made up that I thought was funny sounding. <laughs> and then I started to get all sorts of junk mail uh, addressed to <laughs> Hannibal Z. Jethro. And my parents were pissed. How I never heard this story. <laughs> if we ever have a kid, we're going to name him Hannibal G. G. Zethro. <laughs> and homage to Hannibal G. Z. Jethro. Oh, Z. Jethro. You, you just said Hannibal G. Zethro. <laughs> <laughs> it's nine o'clock in the morning. They don't need to know that. <laughs> that is the best story. How have you never told me that? And then I think, remember when I was talking about having to apply for the draft? When yeah. I was, uh, when I was 18, yeah. when I was 12, because uh, <laughs> I was in Israel. Um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I think Hannibal Z. Jethro also got a draft notice or maybe, maybe, no. maybe my parents were just worried that that was going to happen or something. They were, they told me that I could be arrested for mail fraud. Really? Yeah. And I don't know if they were just trying to scare me or, you know, just let me know that they were pissed at me or if that was a real That is the funniest thing, though. I can't believe your parents didn't think that was funny. You know, they were like uh, scolding you to your face and behind closed doors. They were like, that's the best thing. Now they can laugh about it. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, in the mid 90s, I probably joined Columbia House three or four times for uh, VHS and then again for DVDs in the early aughts. Uh, but when you first joined, you got like six or seven tapes for five bucks or maybe even cheaper than that. Right. And I think I was having a hard time, like finding enough things that I didn't already own that I wanted to order. And I was like, well, Nashville's supposed to be a good movie and I liked shortcuts. Uh, so I think I'll order that. And I liked it right away, went on the list right away. And it's been on the list ever since. I remember being do, doing Columbia House too, <laughs> and like not for music paying, or for movies. Or I think for music or okay. maybe movies. I can't remember, but I just I don't really remember the actual um, activity of picking out stuff. But I remember my parents getting mad at me because I would I didn't pay the bills because I was like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, and then they had to pay the bills, and you, they would just let anybody sign up for it. Absolutely, it was such a scam. 
There was a long, long article in the AV Club a couple of years ago where they talked to people who had worked at Columbia House during that time and talking about the whole system and how they made their money and everything. But, I mean, the basic thing is to hope that people don't send in their cards saying, I don't want the selection of the month, and then send them the selection of the month for full price. Right. You know? And then I think you have to buy, like, three at full price over the year. That's right, You know, yeah. to fulfill your obligation. your membership obligation. But yeah. after the Hannibal Z. Jethro episode where I got a bunch of tapes that I did not want <laughs> – <laughs> but I just out of laziness, I was totally on the ball every time I did it after that. And, uh, and I ordered a fair amount of stuff. I mean, I built up a huge VHS and DVD collection over the years, uh, partially thanks to, uh, to Columbia House. Awesome. But this Nashville, it was a double tape set was definitely like pan and scan. Uh, or maybe not even that. It was just the thing where everything is cut off, you know, so it was actually a terrible image, mm. you know, because it's a widescreen movie. Right. Certainly. And this would have been a boxy, you know, image. So, but though, uh, the movie is visually interesting, but it, it is just more about the characters and the conversation anyway. So I think it's a movie that holds up regardless. But when I finally got it on, uh, DVD, I was like, oh, this, this, there's several things that I missed uh, that are more in the, the periphery because Altman will – there's always scenes where you can't even quite tell who's talking in the moment or where your attention is supposed to go of like mm. who am I supposed to look at? Who am I listening to here? Uh, because he's known for his overlapping dialogue and he's known for kind of characters that kind of come in and out of scenes. So I can understand like first time, time around it can definitely be confusing uh, to get to know 24 main characters. Yeah. Um, something we learned in watching an Altman documentary is that he pioneered the idea of miking individual actors. Yeah. Like everything, I guess, was boom <laughs> before mm-hmm. then. And you just direct the boom at who was talking at the time, uh, which is amazing because it is so standard now. Uh I think also it's interesting that there's a lot of movies on the list that have extensive improvisation that I watched before I really became an improviser or really started teaching improv. And I don't know that I understood at the time how much was improvised uh, of this movie. and But I just liked it because it felt natural and real and different right. than other movies. Yeah, and his whole um his whole thing of characters speaking at the same time, that was something else that he was one of the pioneers of and he actually got fired from a by Jack Warner, right? Yeah, Early for in his one of career. his early movies, yeah. Cuz Jack Warner came in and watched <laughs> the dailies and he fired him because he was like the guy is taping them talking at the same time. <laughs> like all the characters are t- speaking at the same time. He's like it's uh it's Altman-esque. it's so altman-esque this guy but he was like he didn't think he was going to work again because he got fired from that movie yeah uh robert altman loves actors also goes to show you how privileged men are (laughs) white men are do you think it was if it was a lady director who had people talking over each other that she would work again no never (laughs) she'd be like uh making donuts in a bakery yeah after that well, yeah, it is an interesting watching this documentary because he's basically like, and then I told him to go fuck himself. Yeah, like <laughs> he's not, like, 
he's not very easy to work with from what I gathered. Yeah. I mean, obviously very loyal to his friends and the people that he liked working with, you know, I guess I meant more from like the studio's perspective, but yeah, I mean, he, he seems, he's an interesting person, you know, because I think he had a side that was a bit of a bastard and I guess he was a drinker as well and wasn't always nice to his own family. He was married multiple times. Uh, but then also he, I mean, he makes a lot of movies that are very humanistic and, uh, give interesting roles to, you know, to a diverse array of actors, you know? He, um, yeah, when we were watching that documentary, I, I think I kept saying this, like, uh, some people are just born under a lucky star. Like yeah. he just kept finding himself in situ, himself in situations where they were like, we need a director. <laughs> exactly. It was absurd. He even... So he moved out to LA. His neighbor became his writing partner. They sold a script like right away. Right away. Then he decided he wanted to direct. So he's going to, or no, he wanted to write plays. So he was moving to New York to write plays, right? For Broadway? I think so. And he was driving cross country and found himself back in his hometown of Kansas City. Yes. Oh, you're going to let me finish the story? Finish okay. the story. <laughs> and uh, while he was in a bar getting a drink, the guy sitting next to him was somebody he knew growing up. And he was telling him he was a writer and, and he was like, Allman was like, what do you do? And the guy was like, oh, I direct things at this local studio. And he's like, we're looking for more writer directors. <laughs> and he was hired. So he never made it to New York. Yeah. And so he just picked up all of his skills just being hired to do industrials and commercials, right? Yeah. In the Midwest. Uh, and like, I guess, short films or whatever, locally made films. And that's how he got his start. It's so random. And then made his way back out to Hollywood where he directed a bunch of TV episodes. Yep. And then kind of- oh, yeah. Hitchcock saw a film that he made. That's that, right. That was the other thing that was absurd. So then he made a full-length film at the studio in the Midwest. It was kind of panned, right? Like people, It wasn't very successful. But Hitchcock somehow saw it, became a huge fan of him just from that movie that nobody else liked, then flew him out to L.A. and hired him to direct episodes of his TV show. Yes. That's absurd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. You know, born under a lucky star, definitely. And then like getting fired or like go from all these other jobs. But then, although, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with hard work. And you were saying confidence when we were watching it. You were like, anybody can do anything with a lot of confidence. Yeah. Um, But yeah, because then after he would get fired, he'd just do his own stuff. Right. And he was making independent films outside of any system. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's always some confluence of hard work, talent, and pure luck of just yeah. being in the right place at the right time. And Altman definitely had it. Uh, but this is a very Altman-esque film. Mm-hmm. Multiple characters, lots of stories going on, very talky, overlapping dialogue. Uh, and you just keep seeing it, – it's set around the Nashville scene – uh, so it just keeps going around to different places in town, different bars, different clubs, different performing venues, different apartments. Uh, and the, you get a sense by the end of the movie that there are only 24 people who live in Nashville because <laughs> you just keep seeing the same people in different combinations. But it's cool of like that they will turn up in other people's stories and kind of overlap in interesting ways. And there are characters, uh, who are, are just kind of like linking devices to take you from one story to the next. And if you're bored by one character or one story or one song, like, uh, it'll change quickly. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's always something kind of new, uh, to look at or to listen to. 
but I think he's not really that interested in country music. Uh, he's not really that interested in doing an accurate portrayal of the Nashville scene necessarily. I think he just wanted to be in an interesting place uh, with a lot of – with a diverse array of characters – uh, with different stories. You keep saying diverse, but it's not really that diverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's women and black people. <laughs> there's one black person. Well, there's Tommy Brown, who is a black country star. Is he the neighbor of the girl? Uh, no. And then there's the other guy who's the cook at the diner with Sue Lynn. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's, so there's two, two out black, of 24. Two black characters. Diverse. <laughs> But uh, he he is kind of known as a woman's director, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm interested in talking to you about this because I mean there's a lot of great female parts in it, but then they all kind of have sad stories. I mean, is this movie kind of cruel to its female characters? Ah, mm. oh, oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about it like that. I don't know. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> Uh, not, I don't know. I didn't think about it like that. So I guess no, or at least that didn't occur to me. There's one character, Sue Lynn Gay, who is a waitress, uh, who cannot sing at all. And she wants to be a, you know, there's a lot of characters who want to be country music singers. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's also Barbara Harris, uh, who, who's great. Who's great. Yeah. She's like a really good singer. She is, but we don't find that out till the end yeah. when she finally gets to sing because she's another like hanger on who's like, she's l- left her husband who's looking for her for the whole movie. And she's just kind of like trying to get into these open mic situations. And you see her like trying to get backstage at shows and everything. Yeah. Like she comes to town and she's like, I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be a country western star or whatever. And you're supposed to think like, oh, whatever. Yeah. And then at the end, she sings and you're like, oh, she's the best singer that we've seen for the last <laughs> two and a half hours, <laughs> which I guess is the point. Yeah. I, all of the actors wrote their own songs for this movie, which, you know, shows how much faith that Altman has in his cast. But not that song. That was a. Right. That was written by Keith Carradine. Okay. Yeah. Actually. Because it yes. plays earlier in the movie. Yeah. Uh, well, so I should say that all of, all of the songs were written by some actor in, in the, the movie. movie yeah. Uh, at some point. And, and a couple of them, I guess, had sold songs first before he hired them as actors for the movie. Yeah. I read that. Um, yeah. In terms of recognizable actors, certainly Lily Tomlin is probably the, the best known. Some of the better known actors have some of the smallest parts like Scott Glenn and, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Goldblum. Right. Um, Ned Beatty, certainly recognizable. Mike, Michael Murphy, mm-hmm. uh, Karen Black, who was a big star at the time. I didn't know anything about Karen Black. I think I just missed out on all the movies that she ever did. So I didn't know that she was such a big star, but when I was reading about it, I kind of discovered her, I guess. Also, she was in two movies that I always think are the same movie. Okay. Five Easy Pieces. Yeah. And the other one. <laughs> What's the other one? The motorcycle one with the Oh, drugs. Easy Rider? Isn't she in that too? Or no? I don't think she's an Easy Rider. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm just... She might be because there's a lot of female characters they, they kind of meet while driving cross country. Maybe it was just Five, five Easy Pieces. Or is Jack Nicholson in both of those? He's in both of those movies. Okay. Those are the same movie yeah. to me. Okay. But they're not, right? What about The Winner? <laughs> the Winner's a really good movie starring Jack Nicholson. That's on your top 100 list. Nope. <laughs> uh, anyway, those are both drug movies, right? 
Five Easy Pieces, not a drug movie. What's happening? No. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> What's happening was a TV show What's in the 70s. Happening? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Five Easy Pieces, uh, Jack Nicholson is a, a concert pianist who is. What? He is. He is. Uh, he's from a family of musicians and he gets estranged from his family and goes to work on an oil rig. What? Why would he uh, do he that? He works on oil wells in Texas, and then his dad is dying, so he goes back uh, home. But it's got that famous diner scene uh, where he's trying to order the chicken salad sandwich. And Steve Gutenberg's like, talking the whole time. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, whoo. Oh, man. We are in a tangent, off a tangent, <laughs> off a tangent at this point. <laughs> Uh, but then there's a lot of people that you only kind of see in Altman movies because he uses a lot of the same actors. And some of them are kind of non-actors that are just friends of his in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, or people uh, that were cast in this and then you never really saw them in a movie again. So uh, because it does kind of like have a a documentary-ish feel, I mean, some of these people that you don't know from other things, you just kind of really just buy them so as the, characters. So the main singer lady – yeah, Ronnie Blakely uh, plays Barbara Jean, who is kind of a, a loose, uh, ba- loose, loosely based on Loretta Lynn. And she was uh, uh, nominated. She was nominated for supporting actress for an Oscar for this movie. It was her film debut. She was a singer. You know what I know her from? What do you know her from? Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Who does she play in that? She's the mom. She's the mom in Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, so Nashville yeah. was the beginning of her acting career, but she was a singer before this. She sang back up on Bob Dylan's Hurricane. Oh. And uh, she had sold a couple of songs uh, for the movie, and then I guess they hadn't cast Barbara Jean yet, and then they decided to to give her the part. And I think uh, it was a well-deserved nomination because she's very good Yeah, she in is. it. Because there's a whole scene toward the end, not at the final concert, but at a concert just before where Barbara Jean has a breakdown on stage. And it's, uh, it's really horrifying kind of, uh, because she just keeps talking and talking and won't start the next song, you know, and she's just kind of exhausted and a little loopy and probably on all sorts of pills and everything to, to keep her going, you know? Uh, and she, she gives a great performance, I think. Also Oscar nominated for her first film, Lily Tomlin. That was her first film? First movie she ever made. Wow. Can you believe that? I can now. <laughs> Which means, and I actually looked the, the, this up this morning, 9 to 5 was her fourth film. Wow. You kind of think of Lily Tomlin as having been around forever, but she really kind of was late to making movies and, and really hasn't made that much. Hmm. Uh, she certainly was well known as a stand up and having been a cast member on Laugh In. Mm-hmm. Also from Laugh In, uh, Henry Gibson, uh, who was one of the cast members of Laugh In, who plays Haven Hamilton, who's kind of the patriarch of the Nashville scene. And I guess he was kind of based on Porter Wagner, who was Dolly Parton's, uh, Svengali. Okay. <laughs> and so th- that's who's singing the, uh, It Must Be Right. Uh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, so we see him doing a studio session. Uh, and he's kind of a, kind of a prickly figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Carla didn't dig that character that much, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then he appeared later in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Mm-hmm. He's the barfly who kind of gives, uh, William H. Macy a hard time. Also an important film credit, The Burbs. 
Okay. I'm not familiar with the burbs. Unfortunately, you're not. <laughs> Would it be on my list if I had seen it? Probably not. Okay. But it's a good movie. <laughs> okay. What's the what's the plot of the burbs? Can um, that be expressed in a plot? It's like a block of in a neighborhood of friendly neighbors and then this these weird weirdos move in. Who are the weirdos? That guy. Okay. And and another guy. And another guy. I think it's three guys, but they're all like brother, nephew, whatever. Okay. And Tom Hanks is convinced that they're <clears throat> killing people. Are they? Well, I can't ruin it for you. <laughs> Carrie Fisher's in it too. Okay. I'll check it out. Okay. And then uh, Michael Murphy also appeared in both Nashville and Magnolia. So I think this movie, very influential on Paul Thomas Anderson's career mm. in terms of showing a lot of uh, a lot of main characters. I can see that. Uh, but then the other thing that's prescient, this movie is prescient in a couple what a of word. <laughs> it's a real word. I know. <laughs> prescient in a couple of ways. I think I've only read it. Uh, first of all, the... <laughs> The other linking device throughout the whole movie is this political candidate, Hal Philip Walker, uh, who there's a van driving around with loudspeakers that are just kind of blasting his speeches all over Nashville. And in the story of this movie, this guy is running to be president uh, from a third party and I guess is kind of taking over America with his populist rhetoric. Right. And who would have thought... Uh, that somebody who is just telling the people what they want to hear could be a viable candidate for president. Who woulda? Uh, but it's it's interesting to see, and, and like some of the stuff of like, do we uh, ever see him? We never see him. Right, which we just I, hear his voice, right? which I think is very effective. So yeah. you don't really associate him with a face or as a real person. You just hear the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. You were saying before that you didn't think that Altman was necessarily interested in like portraying the country music scene or this or that, but I think he was interested in portraying the political aspect of it. Yes. When you read about any movie, any auteur movie from the 70s, you'll always find of like what it's really about is Vietnam and Watergate, right. which is kind of true of like right. those were the crises that the country was going through at the time. Um, Scott Glenn plays a Vietnam vet. Uh, this movie would have been right after Nixon had resigned uh, from the presidency. So, you know, it, it's kind of a dark time in our country. And then we're heading into the bicentennial. So that's what we must be doing something right to last 200 years refers to, you know, oh, the yeah. 76 uh, was the 200th anniversary of the, the country. And so oh, yeah. kind of the, the irony of celebrating patriotism at the same time that our country was was falling apart, you know. And then uh, the movie also spoilers, spoilers ahead, ends with a uh, ends with an assassination at a concert. Mm -hmm. um, and this was before uh, the shooting of John Lennon and the shooting of Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. in you know in eighty and eighty one. Uh, so there's a guy throughout the whole movie that looks exactly like. Mark David Chapman and it's John crazy. John Hinckley, who yeah. are the guys who you know committed those shootings. He looks like an yeah. He looks like every portrayal of a weirdo. Yes. Now, <laughs> wa watching it to you in 2017, was it obvious that this guy was? I knew that something was, a, was off about him, but yeah. I, I didn't. I and then when I went back to rewatch the first half, there's so many clues about gun control. Yes. And guns. They talk about JFK and Robert Kennedy. Yeah, they talk their about these, their assassinations. Yeah. Like there's a lot 
there to indicate that this could happen and I missed it entirely. So I was surprised when it happened. I was surprised when it happened too. I mean, maybe, you know, now we've spoiled it for you, but <laughs> if, if somebody's watching this now, I'm, I'm curious. So that, that's interesting, you know, yeah. cause he's carrying around a violin case the whole time and then takes his gun out at the end. And I think you're also, you're, it's kind of the red herring is that maybe the Scott Glenn character is a stalker, you know, because right. he, uh, he's hanging around Barbara Jean's hospital room and everything. And both of these guys keep showing up at her concerts. Yeah. yeah. And it's actually, it, it is well done. You know, the, the more you go back and look at it, all the clues that you know, Altman drops in, you know, so it's a very well constructed movie for something that was kind of thrown together. Well, that's in the a thing. slapdash way. The first time I watched the first part, I was paying attention, but I wasn't, I didn't feel the need to have to like piece anything together because it feels so conversational and accidental. Yeah. But then rewatching it, I was like, Oh no, this is like very well laid out. In terms of the things that it's building to. Yeah, absolutely. The movie was constructed uh, from, he sent uh, his writer, Joan Tewksbury, to Nashville. And she just kind of kept a diary for a couple of weeks of things that she had noticed. And so they based the script or the bare bones of a script off of her diary. Yeah, he was like, okay, I'm going to do this movie in Nashville. Uh, His writer's assistant or whatever. He was like, go to Nashville and keep a diary and that's what we'll do. <laughs> it's just such a weird way to do it. And then there was like a multi-car pileup on the highway right when she got there. She, they put that in the movie. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the actors writing their own songs, uh, I mean, the actors were encouraged to like come up with their own characters and everything. There were other situations like Louise Fletcher was originally cast in the Linnea role, the role that Lily Tomlin plays. And uh, she was also in Cuckoo's Nest that same year. She won the Oscar for Nurse Ratchet. And if you remember her acceptance speech, she signed uh, to her deaf parents. Well, they had created this role for her where her children were going to be deaf and she was going to talk to them in sign language. And then she backed out of the movie and uh, they had already cast the the kids. And so the Lily Tomlin took over the part and they kept the whole subplot of having the, the deaf children yeah. uh, in there. You know, so, so that's interesting. I also like the cameos by Julie Christie and uh, what's his butt? Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould playing themselves. Playing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now Elliot Gould uh, certainly became famous from MASH, uh, Altman's first big movie. And Julie Christie was in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, so obviously they liked working with him. Well, I think that they just came to visit the set and then he put them in the movie. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But it works because it's like the country music scene and you would expect to see actors like hanging out probably. Yeah. And Karen Black's character doesn't get who Julie Christie is. Yeah. Yeah. I love that joke of uh, he's telling her, no, she won an Academy Award and Karen Black's like, that can't be right. She can't even brush her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Because she had that famously moppy hair in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go through the movie chronologically a little bit with some Carla's quotes. She's feeling her oats and Craig's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's quotes. The opening credits is, to me, one of the cool things about this movie. Uh, it's constructed like a mid-70s album ad. 
uh, which is literally where you have like the songs that are kind of like panning up this, the screen and then the names of the actors. And you literally have somebody who have like Lily Tomlin, uh, Ned Beatty, Michael Murphy, you know, right. but it's, it's all done like an album ad. You don't realize it's actually the opening credits to the movie. Yeah. I didn't pick that up. Well, Carla, Carla said, I thought this was an ad for a country album. Oh, I did. No, I, I think you thought it was, you didn't realize it was the opening credits, but, oh. but you did realize it was an ad for a country album. I don't remember anything. It's both. It's been eight days. <laughs> yeah, it's been eight days since you watched this movie. <laughs> uh, Carla also said, was the Nashville TV show a sequel to this? I think you were joking. I was joking. I think you, you realized that, uh, that the Nashville TV show was a piece of poop. <laughs> that's was, not fair i only watched a few of the first ones i actually heard that it got pretty good later on really yeah uh that's with i'm trying to come connie up connie britain connie britain i can never remember names and hayden panettiere yep okay um <laughs> i just fell asleep <laughs> One of the linking – well, there's two kind of main linking characters, one of which is Jeff Goldblum who does not have a line of dialogue in the movie. Yeah. So by linking, you mean that this person really – Jeff Goldblum doesn't really have a storyline of his own. He just pops up in other people's storyline and you see him driving this motorcycle around town. Yeah. A he's a crazy guy driving a tricycle motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, you don't really know what his story is. Uh, apparently he hooks up with Shelly Duvall at some point, or maybe just gives her a ride. Right. Uh, he does a little magic trick at the, uh, the diner, but Jeff Goldblum was not very well known at the time. This would would have been one of his first movies too, but so it's interesting to kind of see him there. And then Geraldine Chaplin is the other character and she's supposedly a reporter from the BBC, though. I think if you listen to the commentary, uh, I, I think Altman says there's even a scene where you see that there's no tape in her tape recorder. Oh, really? Yeah. I think oh. they mean to suggest that she's just a crazy lady. Oh, uh, she feels like it. <laughs> yes. Um, and she's very annoying in an amusing way. Yeah, she's great. I, I think. I think she, she gives a great performance in this. But So yeah. we see her with pretty much everybody throughout the film. Yeah. It's actually a good way of meeting some of the different characters and figuring out who they are. Uh, because she's kind of clueless as to who everybody is as well. And she just kind of barges her way into, uh, all situations, uh, by just being bold and British and saying she's a reporter yeah. for the BBC. But when she s- also has the interesting, she has an interesting monologue about guns, mm. uh, that kind of provides some commentary, I guess, for what happens later. Is that when she's wandering around the junkyard? No, I think it's when she's, uh, in the bar. She's talking to people in the bar. That's right. Yeah. Am I am I remembering that properly? I think so. Well, she talks to Haven's girlfriend, who's the the woman who owns the uh, the club. Right. Right. And she's the one who talks about the Kennedy brothers, and uh, and how she loved them, and how they yeah. were, they were taken away. Um. When uh, Haven is recording his his song up front, Carla said, "This guy makes the worst kind of music. Sleepy time music." <laughs> <laughs> He's not a very good singer. No. I, and several of the people are not that great at singing. I mean, they're, yeah. they're actors first. I mean, that, that's why it is so impressive at the end uh, when, you know, Ronnie Blakely can sing pretty well. You know, Karen Black can sing okay. Uh, Keith Carradine actually. Not, oh, he's great. You liked Keith Carradine singing? Yes, I yeah. loved it. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, he he sounds like a sensitive singer songwriter from the seventies. He sounds like Pat Stevens or yeah, somebody like that. But that song "I'm Easy" that he sang not only won the Oscar for best original song, but it was a top twenty hit on the Billboard chart too. Uh, and kind of the the pivotal scene of the movie. That was the first perhaps. song where I was like, "Oh, this feels like a real song." Like a real song. Yeah, it's interesting because the songs are like they're not quite parodies of country music, but they're not quite real representations of what a country music song. Well, would I mean, be. now like, that you said Loretta Lynn, it does that lady. Yeah. Was, you know, that's all about mama and daddy vein. and her and her home and yeah, everything. Yeah, that feels in the same vein. Yeah. But uh, but Haven's music was putting you to sleep. That might you just, you might have just been tired. I don't know if it was sleepy <laughs> sleepy time music. You also said I hate this guy already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also kind of a, a recurring joke of all the uh, the Nashville like session musicians and all the characters in town have uh, animal names uh, because of like who's that piano player? That's Frog. When I ask for pig, I want pig. <laughs> <laughs> and then later there's a guy named Trout too. That's funny. Uh, when you first saw Ned Beatty, you're like, hey, that guy, Superman. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Christopher Reeve is Superman. No, but, but he's uh, um, Lex Luthor's he's Otis. two. He's Otis. He's also in The Toy, I think, which is that super shady race, racist movie. <laughs> Where Richard Pryor becomes a little boy's toy? Yeah. Yes. Which I watched uh, all the time when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. I have not seen that in years. I think he's in that. I think he's the he one might- who get who... Um, pays Rich or what's his face? Richard Pryor. Anyways. Okay. Okay. Moving on. It sounds right. Yeah. Ned Beatty was in every movie in the seventies yeah. and early eighties, basically. Um, who's the current Ned Beatty? I like playing this game. Who is the current Ned Beatty? Uh, um, John C. Riley. No. Yeah, I feel like he's John, been around for so long. That's a pretty good approximation, though. Yeah. Um. But I feel like uh, John C. Riley's had enough big parts yeah. to kind of counteract that. Yeah. Early on when Philip Seymour Hoffman was was starting out, I mean, he was in kind of like a Ned Beatty thing, but then he moved into Leeds yeah. as well. Yeah. I'm picturing an actor, but I can't come up with his name. All right. At that moment. Mm. You'll tweet it out. Okay. Tweet it out. Tweet it out, Craig. I'm about to. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was born to do. Uh, though, uh, back to classic, uh, assholes, um, <laughs> who did I say? Tracy Letts was the modern day version of, yeah, of somebody, of somebody. <laughs> anyway, Michael Murphy, who turns up in this movie was kind of like, uh, for a while there, he was the quintessential American asshole, uh, because he plays the, uh, the guy who's organizing the concert for Hal Philip Walker. Uh, and so he's kind of like a straight laced corporate, uh, political guy. Uh, but Michael Murphy, of course, plays Woody Allen's friend in, uh, Manhattan that's having an affair with Diane Keaton. Oh, yeah, that guy. And then, um, and he turns up in Magnolia as well. Um, when all those cars pull out together, uh, Carla's like, uh, there's an opening scene at the airport where Barbara Jean is landing. We meet most of the characters there. And then, uh, kind of all the cars pull out of the parking lot at the same time, kind of willy nilly. Carla's like, it's like a Trader Joe's parking lot. <laughs> That's not that funny of a joke. Everybody makes that joke. <laughs> That's the reference point for a lot of cars at a lot of times. 
being crazy. Being crazy. Um, we see Sue Lynn getting ready for a gig, uh, stuffing her bra, and Carla's like, never understood the stuffing your bra thing. Never did it. Yeah, there's a whole stuffing your bra thing in Animal House as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think people did do that, but I just never, none was, of my friends did it that I knew of, at least. Bras have been, been developed since then. Right. That, uh, that help pad you out a little more, right? Pad, yeah, that's true. Padded bras as opposed to underwire bras. Okay. But now there's also underwire and padded bras. There's all kinds of bras. <laughs> We've been through this so many times in this <laughs> podcast, all the, all the bras that are available. Victoria's Secret's really, you know, ex- expressed <laughs> different <laughs> styles and shapes and sizes. Uh, Shelley Duvall, one of Altman's favorite actors, uh, appears in this movie as kind of like a hippy-dippy character who's there to visit her uncle and aunt. Uh, but she's in a giant afro for a while, and Carla's like, this scene is slightly racist. <laughs> Just based on the size of her Afro wig. Uh, yeah, Keith Carradine, you did not realize. Was him. Uh, was him. Because <laughs> uh, he kind of had blondish hair and a beard. And in he this. was really good looking in this. Yeah. He was, he was and he's a, not somebody that I would, and I like older men, <laughs> as sure. you know. Yeah. Uh, meaning you're older than me, not that I'm checking out <laughs> random older men on the street. <laughs> but I don't you think You like a older man. I never thought of him as like, necessarily handsome or whatever yeah uh but you like you liked him a lot in dexter and fargo yeah i think he's a really good actor but i again i just don't think of him as sexy or whatever but i thought he was super sexy in this movie yeah so he plays tom who's like more like a folk rock kind of guy and he's part of a trio bill mary and tom that are there uh releasing their debut album in nashville and he sleeps with every woman in this movie yeah. He's a real dog. He's a real piece of shit. <laughs> uh, I have to say though, the, so you see him sleeping with all these women and then he sleeps with his bandmate who's married to his other bandmate. Yes. And she's like, I love you. I love you. And he's sleeping yeah. or pretending like he's sleeping and she yeah. just keeps saying, I love you. I love you. And then he sleeps with Lily Tomlin. He sleeps with everyone. Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Geraldine Chaplin. Yeah. But when he sleeps with Lily Tomlin, it's like he's worked so hard to seduce her, right? Yeah. And he finally seduces her. And then there's that great scene where she's like, I got to go. And he's like, don't leave. And she's like, no, really, I got to go. So she gets up to leave. He calls his wife or girlfriend back home yeah. to make Lily Tomlin jealous like while she's in the room. She still just leaves and like blows him a kiss goodbye. He hangs up the phone and you can tell he's furious yeah. that it didn't work. Yeah. It's a really good moment. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, and then he sings that song, I'm Easy, at the club and all those women that he slept with are there. And they all think that he's singing to him until they realize he's just staring at Lily Tomlin. <laughs> um. When we see the uh, the creepy uh, guy who's the shooter at the end, he's renting a room from Keenan Wynn, who's the uh, the older guy and also the uncle of uh, of Shelley Duvall. It's thirteen fifty a week for the room. <laughs> yeah. And Carla said, "Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> we could have lived like kings in nineteen seventy five. Nineteen seventy five Nashville." <laughs> Oh, our rent money would go so far. Now we'd be renting a room in some old guy's house. <laughs> fine, thirteen fifty a week. That's fine. When we saw uh, Elliot Gould making his cameo, Carla said, "Elliot Gould, best known as Barbara Streisand's first husband." 
I don't know, best known. I think so. Also the father of Jason Gould. Who I thought I saw at Sharky's a month ago. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you did. I hope I did too. Yeah. Jason Gould, of course, best known for his role in Craigslist movie, Say Anything. Or The Prince of Tides. Probably best known for The Prince of Tides. Bigger part. He bigger has a part much in, bigger part in Prince, Prince of, of Tides. Tides. Yeah. Another bit of trivia that I learned about Ronnie Blakely in looking her up. Did you see who her ex-husband was? <gasps> nope. Vim Vendors, director of Wings of Desire. Oh, really? Strange, huh? Which one was Ronnie Blakely again? She's Barbara Jean. Oh, right. That is strange. <laughs> When uh, Haven Hamilton is singing at the Grand Old Opry, oh no, I think this is Karen Black's uh, character actually says this. Uh, she's talking to the kids at the show. She's like, any one of you can grow up to become president. And Carla said, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> During that scene uh, where Mary is whispering, I love you, I love you to Tom, Carla said, I love you. I love you. That's what I do while you're sleeping at night. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> Uh, Keenan Wynn's character is just heartbreaking. He's the guy whose wife is dying in the hospital. That to me is the saddest character in the movie, honestly. Yeah. Well, Carla's quote, this guy makes me sadder than anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) You are consistent. This guy makes me the saddest because he picks up Shelly Duvall from the airport and he's like, your aunt is sick in the hospital and her aunt is his wife. And he's like an, you know, he's like an elderly guy. And, uh, he brings her into the hospital and he's like, okay, just give me one second so that I can make sure that she's ready for you. While he's in the room, Shelly Duvall starts hitting on somebody in the, in the, uh, waiting room or whatever. He comes out and he's like, okay, aunt so-and-so is ready for you. And she's like, I'm talking, I'm talking. Okay. I'm in a conversation. (laughs) And he's like, oh, sorry. And he steps back and then she leaves with this guy. She just leaves. She doesn't even go see her aunt. And then later he's sleeping on his porch. I don't know why an old man sleeping on their porch is the saddest thing (laughs) I've ever seen, but it is. And the scene where he, where they tell him at the hospital desk that his wife has died. Uh, it's just so, it's so sad. It's so sad. It's also, again, really well done. And there's a lot of things happening in that scene because it's not just that he found out that his wife just died, but then Scott Glenn keeps interrupting him. Yes. Not knowing that his wife has died. Yeah. Talking to him and he's like, oh, I, I hope I get to meet your wife someday or, or I hope she gets better soon or something like that. Yeah. And he, we know that she's just died and he knows, Ugh, it's sad. You guys, death is sad, <laughs> sad. And Craig likes to remind me of death and all of his movies. When we do see the scene of Geraldine Chaplin, she's wandering through a auto graveyard. Uh, and Carla said, what happened to all that trash? <laughs> <laughs> so much trash. And then I think that's it for Carla's quotes. Cause I think we watched the other half, uh, separate from each other. Do you remember any quotes that you said to yourself um, while you were watching the back half? I think I might have said, get it, Lily, get it, <laughs> when she was getting it on with Keith Carradine. I think I said that. I think I might have said, ooh, nice hair a few times. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of your era for hair. Yeah. You love the 70s. Yeah. Do you know that Lily Tomlin, I mean, not only hooks up with Keith Carradine, a uh, hottie in this movie, but then she had a, a movie moment to moment a couple years after this where she and John Travolta were lovers. Oh, really? And I mean, which is funny enough, like kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind of having a sense of their history. But then mom- I didn't realize this. I was looking at moment to moment this morning. It was written and directed by Jane Wagner, who was Lily Tomlin's ah. wife. 
That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's just, it's just interesting. What's your point? <laughs> <laughs> a couple other scenes that I like that we watch separately at, at that same thing where Bill, Mary and Tom are, are singing, um, uh, when Geraldine Chaplin kind of joins them at their table and she's kind of like mouthing off of like how she and Tom are a thing and everything. Yeah. And then Mary kind of turns away from her and she's in the foreground. We can kind of see her reaction. Yeah. Uh, as Geraldine Chaplin is blathering on in the, uh, the background. Um, yeah, I mean, Sue Lean is, is definitely like, they're very cruel to that character because she's the, you know, she's the pretty waitress who can't sing and she gets roped into doing a strip tease at this political, uh, like donors meeting, which is all like these gross guys in suits, like hooting and hollering at her. And she thinks she's going to get to sing. And then Ned Beatty and Michael Murphy convince her to take her clothes off. Yeah. There, that's you really know. sad. It is. It's sad, but then she acts like an a dummy like five minutes later again. Because then they're like, you can do it and we'll let you sing with Barbara Jean at the big concert tomorrow. And she agrees to do it, you know? Yeah. So then she gets a ride home from Ned Beatty who, you know, is hitting on her really grossly and then gets interrupted by her friend from the, the diner, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's one of my favorite scenes too, because you He's know, like, I just got to tell you, you can't sing. You can't sing, girl. <laughs> You're terrible. <laughs> you know? It's like the first time anybody's ever told her. Or anybody's something. ever told her that, you know, and you, I mean, this guy's also, he's a bit of a drunk and he's a little bit of a player too. Like we've seen him hit at Lily Tomlin on yeah. the, at the club, you know, and, uh, and he's railing against the, uh, the other black guy in the movie as an uncle Tom, yeah. you know? Uh, but I, I like that character, even though he's a small character and you get a sense that him and Suleen have a, a friendship, you know. I think I'm okay with this. Going back to the question you asked in the first five minutes <laughs> about how I feel like women are shown on the screen if they're not being treated nicely. I mean, she's probably the one besides the woman who gets shot at the end, of course, but this character is probably the one who's treated the worst in terms of having to strip for all these men. But I think because she, is so um, obsessed with fame and is doing it just because she wants to be famous and is such a bad singer. And it's like, she's so beautiful that nobody's ever told her. Yeah. Or, or maybe this, maybe lots of people have told her she can't sing, but she just doesn't believe them. Yeah. Uh, she just seems like a real representation of a certain type of woman to me. Yeah. So I don't know. That's my opinion on it. And I think, you know, that, that's partially why this was such an interesting setting to Altman because of the parallels of Hollywood, too, of mm -hmm. just like dreamers showing up every day and a lot of them are going to get their dreams crushed, you know. And But I think there's something about Nashville that because country music singers are so like accessible to their fans, you know, and Nashville just being a smaller town than Los Angeles to that. It really does. The lines blur a lot more and of like, who's allowed to be here and who isn't and who's a big star and who's a wannabe right. and, and who's a stalker and everything. And so it, it's actually, it's kind of a cool setting to tell those stories of, of showbiz wannabes. Uh, I think. Yep. Now Nashville is, you know, I mean, it obviously was the country music town at the time, but now it's an even bigger industry town. I think the whole scene is a lot more. Thanks, Blake Shelton. Is <laughs> a lot more polished. And then so the whole movie culminates in uh, this big concert scene at the Parthenon. 
uh, which is the... In Athens? Not in Athens. In Nashville. Oh, right, right. In Nashville, of all places. Uh, so that they've built a replica of the uh, the Parthenon in Nashville, and that's where the concert for the rally for how Philip Walker is and... All the characters kind of culminate there. All the performers are there. Barbara Jean. Uh, and then, uh, this creepy guy that we talked about before, uh, takes out a gun and, uh, and shoots her, presumably dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, Haven Hamilton kind of holds her and says, uh, this isn't Dallas, it's Nashville. And he encourages the everybody to keep singing. And Barbara Harris uh, finally takes the mic and sings "It Don't Worry Me." Uh, everybody joins her, and then the movie kind of fades out from there. So, yeah. what'd you think of that ending? Um, I was it was surprising. I wasn't expecting it, <laughs> uh, and I thought Barbara Harris was really good, a fun singer. Second City alum. She's from the original Second City cast. Yeah. Uh, 1959. I actually looked her up after I watched this to find out what she's been up to, and she's kind of just disappeared. Yeah, she did a fair amount of stuff in the 70s. She was the original mom in Freaky Friday Yeah. with Jodie Foster. But I couldn't find any um, death. <laughs> no, she's still around so as far as I know. Alive. She visited Second City a few times while I was an actor there. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Did she perform with you guys? No, she didn't do a set. No. Uh, but if you can find some of the original Second City Company stuff online, there's a great scene between Barbara Harris and Alan Arkin at an art gallery. Where That's he's, my favorite. Where yeah. he's a hipster. And it's like a 20 minute I was going to say, it's too. like a one act play. Yeah, that's kind of like what the sketches were at the time. You know, it was a little more like what Nichols and May were doing, too, of like mm-hmm. these long, long character pieces. I bet that's online because I feel like I've watched that a few years ago. Yeah. Not I, too long ago, somewhere online. I think it is. Let's find it and put it up on our <laughs> Twitter. Yeah, so this character who has been waiting to sing the whole time kind of finally gets her spotlight. And I always kind of interpreted it of... Yeah, she's she can sing and she's good, but is anybody really paying attention to what's going Like, why is this concert still going on right. when there was a shooting? Well, like, I thought that that was the point, that they were into it. That yeah. even though this person was just shot dead, bef- this woman was just shot dead before their eyes, it's like, well, we'll just move on. Mm-hmm. Like, that was how I interpreted it. Yeah, and so then this, the song, It Don't Worry Me, like, that could be interpreted either of, like, we're forging ahead... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the face of tragedy, or it could mean like we're sticking our heads in the sand and ignoring like the violence uh, around us, and we're we're being you know willfully ignorant of what's going on in our country. Right. That's the, the second one was how I interpreted it. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Is which well. is why it felt so relevant. Yeah, I it's, think so. Like, so so finally, Nashville in my opinion, stands the test of time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you had seen it last year, maybe you wouldn't think that. Right. Yeah, but it it does feel like especially prescient. Mm -hmm. There's that word again. I think I would have thought that a year ago, too. Yeah. Because we have such a... Polarized. Well, and just a horrific gun issue. Yeah. That's really just tearing the country apart. Uh, So anyways... (laughs) Uh, it's only accelerated and gotten worse since 1975. Yay. Comedy podcast. (laughs) And, uh, yet another gun statement from Carla Kukowski. I don't know what what kind of statement that was. (laughs) Just, just the truth. Yeah. 
Uh, you want to improvise a scene from the yeah, movie? Yeah, let's do it. Which one do you want to do? Well, why don't we be uh, Tom and Linnea then? Uh, so Keith Carradine uh, has taken uh, Lily Tomlin to bed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can I be actually, can we do Shelley Duvall? You want to be Shelley Duvall? Because we didn't see that scene, right? Oh, okay. Where she sleeps with Tom? Sure. He just shows up with her at the club. Am I right in yeah. saying that? Okay. okay. So this is Carla as Martha, which she has some like hippy dippy name too, right? Oh, yeah. Like Star, da- Daisy or Star or something. Starflower. Yeah, something like that. Um, you can just make it up. Really? For the improv scene? <laughs> yeah. Wow, I love your wallpaper. That's it's a hotel room, so you know it's uh it's not mine. But uh, hey, you want to listen to one of my songs? Wow, sure. You got a smoke? Yeah, I got everything you want. Everything you say, it just there's so much truth in it. It really, it 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 moves me. Sure, it moves me. I'm loaded with truth. I got nothing but truth, baby. Huh. Yeah, so this is uh this is me singing, you know. I'm hoping to uh, you know, kinda of get a solo act going. Yeah. Let's kiss. <laughs> oh, you kiss so good. What were you saying before? Saying I want to get a solo act going. Oh. Meaning I'm going to masturbate. Wow. I did that this morning. And in the car before we got here okay i'm done you can leave now yeah i've got a 230 i've got a three o'clock i've got a 330 there's 24 women in this movie so i gotta gotta make my way through all of them huh (laughs) don't you uh didn't you say that your aunt's in the hospital oh right i keep forgetting that that's why i'm here what does red rum mean (laughs) Yeah, I wrote uh, wrote that on the uh, on the mirror. Weird. Yeah, I'm hoping that room service will come in and bring me some red rum. You know, this hotel room is so trippy. You don't have uh, a jealous husband, do you? Not that I remember. Starflower, I'm home. <laughs> scene and scene. Was that a good Shelley Duvall? I think that was a pretty good Shelley Duvall. Was it? I don't know. I know that she's like spacey sounding and she's got a high voice. Are you trying to get your three characters together for SNL? Yeah. yeah. Shelley Duvall. So, <laughs> ripped from the headlines. Like, Terry Garr. Okay. Yeah. And who would be somebody else from that era? <laughs> Shelley Duvall, Terry Garr, and Ellen Burstyn. Congratulations. You've been hired for SNL in 1982. <laughs> You would have been great in that cast. Thanks. Carla, you want to give Nashville a letter grade? Yes, I'll give it an A. An A minus an A. I'll go with an A. <laughs> wow. So you liked it. I do like it. I told okay. you that. Cool. Did it, did cool. I sound like I did no, like I it? No, th- I felt like you liked it the whole way through, but sometimes, you know, you'll, uh, you know, you'll say positive things and then you'll throw in a B minus. So. Right. I yeah. I'm just so you can't tell. With You're me. unpredictable like yeah. that. What does that A slash A minus stand for? Um, the A slash A minus stands for Altman. You're missed because <laughs> he's dead. He is dead. 
And uh, since uh, I did just do some Googling and he died five months after Prairie Home Companion was released. I know that because I remember seeing interviews with him when it was released. I knew he was still alive. So you were correct about that. Here's another thing Carla correct on. Karen Black was an easy writer. She was? Yes. (gasps) Yeah. Let me hear the cheers, (laughs) y'all. Carla, yeah. You That's got my me, bandstand of people. You got me twice. You got me twice, Carla. Twice. Yeah. In one hour. So uh, thus concludes episode 37. Next week, we have, you know, I have very few movies from this century on the list, i.e. the last 17 years. I have a total of six movies, and one of them is next week. It's a 2004 movie directed by Michel Gondry, written by Ooh. Charlie Kaufman. Ooh. And starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, I think you know what this movie is. Batteries not operated. Batteries not included. <laughs> it's batteries not operated. The sequel to the winner. <laughs> uh, what, is, what is batteries not included? By the way, it's a movie with um, Jessica Tandy. It's uh-huh. like it was like Cocoon era. Okay, but it was like a sci-fi kids movie where these little machines fly around. Okay, post Cocoon. I think shortly thereafter. Yeah. But the reason I thought that is because they did a movie together, Michelle Gondry. No, was did Charlie Kaufman write that one with Jack Black where um they make a movie and it's like Wait, are you thinking of Be Kind Rewind? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that led you to batteries not operated? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I have some sense of how her mind works, but you know, if I know better than anybody else, then you guys definitely <laughs> can't get a handle on it. Uh, you like Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind? Don't I you? love it. Okay, I've seen it. So you're excited to see it I again? Am. And we'll see if there's any cell phones in that movie because I, we think that there's not a single movie on my list that has a cell phone in it. I bet Amelie has cell phones in it, doesn't it? What the movie Amelie is that on my list? <laughs> I guess we'll find out later. Did you tell them who our guests are? Yeah, so we're going to have a couple special guests joining us. We're going to have a couple joining us. It's the first time, right? First time having two guests. Yeah. And yeah, first time having another couple on there. So I think two couples discussing the relationship, uh, (laughs) rocky uh, landscape that is Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind should be fun. I think it'll bring us closer together. Always. Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> Love you, Carla. Thanks. <laughs> the list is an absolute good. The list is life.